Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Entrenched Podcast. My name is Sam, and I'll be your host today as we dive deep into the book, Unoffendable, by Brant Hansen. The book, Unoffendable, is very interesting, so today's episode of the Entrenched Podcast will be another book review, and we're going to be discussing the idea of what it means to be unoffendable. I have a bunch of notes here that I'm going to be referencing. For those of you that are viewing this through my YouTube channel, please excuse my lack of eye connection sometimes as I glance at my notes. For those of you that are listening through the interwebs of Spotify or Apple, I appreciate it and you won't have to endure me looking at my computer sometimes. But thank you so much for everyone that is tuned in and I think you're really going to enjoy this as we dive into what it means to be an unoffendable Christian. What does that mean? As Brant lands it out or lays it out in the book, unoffendable, let me just share with you, I suppose, a, a brief overview. There are um, there are 24 chapters and the book is 195 pages long from the beginning to the end of the book. There's roughly 211 pages total, but that's including the prefix and the summary and all of that. So it's a pretty short book, not even 200 pages long, and it's 24 chapters. So the chapters are fairly short. As you can see, if you're looking on the YouTube version or through TikTok, the summary of the book is we as Christians have no right to be offended in the face of Christ and his sacrifice for us. This book lays out what it means to be an unoffendable Christian. And I think in today's culture, this is actually a very timely book and a timely message for Christians to consider. A lot of times we as Christians, we want to justify our anger and we want to justify our offense. And in today's culture, being offended is the norm. In fact, we want to pursue things that we find offendable. We join in the Twitter wars. We join in the, the uh, what would be the word for it? We join in, in our efforts to cancel people. There we go. And we constantly find ourselves being offended and looking for causes that would offend us. And what this book challenges is your mindset. As a Christian, do you have a right to be offendable? I recommend that any Christian who finds themselves angry, upset, offended, frustrated, annoyed, who finds themselves being human, <laughs> dive into this book. And it does a really great job in detail going over the reason, the why, and the how a Christian should be unoffendable. The author explains that anger is always, not just sometimes, associated with foolishness and not wisdom. Being offended is a tired business, is what the author explains. But letting go of things gives you energy. So anger, anger isn't just, anger is never justified. I think the answer to this initial statement is, well, there is righteous anger. 
Christ was angry in the temple. He overthrew, uh, he threw the tax collectors and the sinners out. But we're talking about human anger here, not the righteous anger of God. And our anger drains us. It pulls life out of you, and it ultimately leaves you, leaves you unsatisfied. But forgiving, forgiving and loving people fills you with energy. So as a Christian, if you choose to not be angry and you choose to be unoffendable, I think you will find a much more fulfilling life in your pursuit of Christ and in your pursuit of righteousness. The mark that anger leaves on the soul, it's not worth it. Here's a quote that I want to read. The mark of the the mark on the soul that anger leaves is not worth it. It isn't the bitterness or smallness of anger that matters. How it may seem from the outside is what matters. What matters is the little stain anger leaves on your soul. I kind of butchered that a little bit. But in summary, what matters is Not how angry you appear on the outside, whether it's big anger or small anger. What matters is that little stain that anger leaves on your soul. Just that little bit of of a twist. Every time you're angry and you hold angerness, it takes something from you. To be an unoffendable Christian is to walk closer to God. Of course, we all get angry, and the book lays this out well. It's impossible for us as Christians to not at some point struggle with anger. The problem is, are you carrying your anger with you? Or do you get angry, and then you choose to be unoffendable? As Christians, we have to lay down our anger in the light of Christ's love and forgiveness and choose to be unoffendable. I think that's a powerful message. In chapter 6, he states this. The title is, Aren't You Tired? And he talks about our rush to get through life. We're always in a hurry, and we're always choosing to pursue the next thing. Aren't you tired? Chapter 6 does a great job talking about what it means for you as a Christian to create space for nothing. I'll say it again. Aren't you tired of chasing the next thing? The next scroll on TikTok? The next cultural thing to be offended by? Aren't you tired of, of just constantly pursuing to level up? To grind? to make money. The fullness of life is captured in moments of nothingness. The fullness and joy of life is captured in moments where you can step aside and be at peace with nothing. Chapter 6 does an excellent job breaking down what it means to live a life of peace and tranquility in a world that is chaotic 
and messy. To choose to be unoffendable in the great chaos of life. It's a powerful message. Here's another thing I want to share. It's from chapter 22. In chapter 22, he says, Refusing to be alienated and put off by the sins of others is what allows us to become more Christ-like. What a powerful word. The sins of others shouldn't bring us to rage and anger. Humility and care in the, faith of, in the face of sin is a better reflection of Christ's love. This brings to mind the woman who came to Christ and used her tears to clean his feet. She was, in our modern day world, a whore, sleeping around with any man who would have her for money. And in that time, where she's more accepted by society today as just, I guess, getting her bread, at that time she was even more outcast than the modern woman of the streets would be. And yet Christ chose to love her and accept her anyways. And he sent her away with a warning, go and sin no more. But in the light of Christ's love, she found peace, hope, and joy. Choosing to be unoffended, choosing to be unalienated by the sins of the world is a better representation of Christ-like love. Choosing to step back and say, the sins of the world don't offend me or alienate me, but instead they inspire me to compassion, love, and grace. That is a message that will resonate with the world. So often we as Christians choose to be offended by the sins of the world rather than inspired to love and compassion. If we take the message of this book and we decide to be unoffendable in the absolute face of chaos, sin, and the the drudgery that is our current, especially American culture, you'll find yourself drawing closer to the heart of Christ. I want to read you a story from this book. It's in chapter 11. So I'm going to scroll there really quick. Let's see, let's see. I apologize, I'm scrolling. So this is a story from the book called Messy Spirituality. And uh, the author told a story about a small group of American soldiers during World War II who were sought out for a brutal a burial site for one of their fallen friends. So I'm going to read this verbatim from the book. They were pulling out the next day and were hoping to bury him in a fence churched in cemetery nearby. As the sun was setting, they were approached the house. They approached the house. Oh, so sorry. My uh, camera stopped recording. So I'm going to start it back up. So I'm going to, I'm going to start again. Apologies for those who are just listening, but I want it to be a 
continuous loop. So they were pulling out the next day and were hoping to bury him in a Finch churchyard cemetery nearby. As the sun was setting, they approached the house next to the church and knocked on the door. The priest answered. They were asked, they asked if they could bury their friend in the cemetery. I'm sorry, he replied, but that's only for members of our church. The priest went on to tell the soldiers they could, if they chose, bury their comrade near the cemetery, but on the other side of the fence. They were saddened, but had few options. So that's what they did. The next day, they wanted to visit their fellow soldier's grave site one last time before moving on. When they came to the churchyard, they were shocked. They couldn't find his grave. It simply wasn't there. One of them went to the parsonage door and knocked. What happened to the grave we dug? One soldier asked. When the priest answered, it's not there. We did it last night and it's not there. It's still there. The soldier was baffled. You see, last night I couldn't sleep, the priest confessed. All I could think about was what I had told you, that you couldn't bury your friend inside our fence. I regretted that. So last night I got up. And I moved the fence. Now, I now want to be the guy who moves the fence. I want to be the guy who says, yes, I see the mess you've made of the things, just as you have. But God wants us all, no matter how big our mess is, no matter what. What a great story. In the face of absolute chaos in the world, this priest decided to be accepting of others, even though it broke his own personal code for their church and how they conducted burials. He moved the fence. How do we as Christians move our fence that we've unintentionally or intentionally set up? How do we move the fence to accept the world and all of their sin and brokenness? just as Christ has accepted us and all of our sin and brokenness. Can we choose to be an unoffendable Christian? What a very, very interesting book, and what a powerful question. In chapter 15, he talks about how we make idols of our families. If you elevate anything before Christ, it becomes an idol. Personally, as a new parent, this is something I've really struggled with. I really struggled with the idea that, am I making an idol of my son and of my time with him? I find myself often thinking about how I should personally spend more time with him. And if I don't, is it? Is he going to falter or fail or is he going to need me more? What I'm trying to say is I make an idol of myself and my place in his life. The reality is the Heavenly Father is enough for my son and my presence in his life is simply a gift. I'm a steward that presence well. The science shows a father's presence in his son's life 
has a tremendous impact. And for me to ignore that would be straight foolishness. However, for me to overemphasize the importance of the place in my son's life, or for me to consider my son lost without me, would be to idolize myself or him. Here's an interesting uh, quote from the book that I want to read. Honest question. If I'm a good Christian and have faith in stuff, will God protect my children? Honest answer. He might or he might not. Honest follow-up question. So what good is he? I think the answer is, is that he's still good, but our safety and the safety of our kids isn't part of the deal. This is incredibly hard to accept in an American evangelical church scene because we love families and we love loving families. And we nearly associate godliness itself with the cherishing of family beyond any other earthly thing. But someone would challenge this bond. The primary family bond is offensive. And yet, Jesus did it. And it was even more offensive then than it is in the culture today. In a culture that wasn't nearly as individualistic as ours, everything based on family, your reputation, your status, everything. And yet he challenges the idea that our attachment to family is so important, so noble, that it is synonymous with our love for him. Which leads to the same to some other spare thoughts like this. We can make idols out of our families. Again, in a focus on the family subculture, it's hard to imagine how that could be. Families are good. But idols aren't made of bad things. They are used to be furnished out of trees or stone. And those aren't bad either. Idols aren't bad things. They are good things made ultimate. We make things ultimate when we see that true God is a root to these things, or a generator of them. It sounds like heresy, but it's not. The very safety of our family can become an idol. God wants us to want him for him, not merely for what he can provide. What a powerful word from this book, and it's it's from chapter 11. I really think it's it's important to remember that we can't idolize our families. If we believe that God is simply the protector of our family, and that family is the most important thing for us to steward as a Christian, then we've missed our calling and our purpose here on the world. God isn't simply meant to protect our family. We are meant to love and pursue God. And our family being protected isn't a guarantee of that love and that pursuit. Life is messy. Life is hard. And we have to trust that God's work will be done in the midst of pain, suffering, and the hardness of life, whether our family makes it out safe or not. That is a very challenging thought and a very tough thing for any father, mother, or family to work through. But it will draw you closer to Christ and it will make you a less offendable Christian. As I scroll through my notes here, um, I want to take a look at this one thing. I want to talk through one, one more concept that the book preaches about, which is 
excuse me, the book teaches that we have been given the ultimate gift of life by our Father. It's the same as being given a million dollars. If you would, would you still be offended if someone cut off, cut you off in traffic? Probably not. It's the same with the forgiveness that we hold. The message it teaches is, if you were to wake up tomorrow and be given a million dollars, and then you were to go out driving and someone cut you off in traffic, you wouldn't find yourself as offended because you've just been given something so valuable. You're so elated and so excited in that moment. Nothing anyone could do would derail your contentment and joy in the face of that million-dollar gift. But how much more is the love and grace that God has given us? And we carry that with us every day, and yet we find ourselves constantly offended by the world around us. What if you actually believed that by following Christ, you've been given the greatest gift of all time, and you choose to be an unoffendable Christian. If you find yourself getting offended in, in the, the dash of life, in the madness that is thereof, once again, I, I encourage you to read this book. I'm only highlighting little pieces and bits, but it's so profound. I want to read off page 133 now. Let's see if I can find it. Let's see. Scrolling, scrolling. God wants to spend eternity with us. His eternity. If we're mindful of this, if we really believe it, how does this not leave us stunned and joyful? How does it not leave us less apt to take deep deep offense? How can we continue to do so and be so easily slighted and hurt? Consider that. The God of the world wants to spend eternity with you. He wants you to spend eternity with him. And in the face of that, you still find offense and anger in this life? We have to come to recognize That when we carry anger around, not when you're momentarily offended or upset, that's a very natural human instinct, but when you carry it with you, it leaves a mark on your soul that will grow a small little plant and that if nurtured could become a tree. We have to set aside these things and not carry our offense of the world with us. The book can be summarized in page 40 and 41. Churning there now. Listen to this. I hope you caught the part that says, in light of the fact that they all have been loved by Jesus. This is why we can and should overlook offenses. This is why we give up our right to anger, however justified we feel in it. If I'm to love people the way God loves me, I have to love them faults and all. It's that simple and excruciatingly difficult. Since anger has value, giving it up requires a sacrifice. And as we've explored, it's only one that's simply one that's simply not optional for the follower of Jesus. The cross simultaneously stands as a constant reminder of his willingness to pay the bill and as an indictment on us 
when we are unwilling to do the same for others. I think about the story in the Bible where the man comes to Christ and he, or the man comes to the king. It's, it's a parable. And this, this servant comes to the king and he says, I need you to forgive me of my debt. I don't have enough money to pay you back. And the king says, I forgive you. The servant leaves and finds a fellow servant who owes him money. He grabs him by the neck and says, hey, pay me the money you owe me. The fellow servant pleads for mercy, but he has him thrown into prison. This man is then brought back before the king and he says, I forgave you of your debt that you couldn't pay. And yet you couldn't forgive your fellow servant. Be gone out of my sight. That is us as Christians when we choose to hold anger against the world and be offended by its unrighteousness. Christ has forgiven the world of its sins and transgressions. How can we not do the same? This is an excellent book and it'll prick at the pride and arrogance in your heart. I encourage everyone to read it. It wouldn't take you more than a couple of days. A very enjoyable, easy read, unoffendable by Brand Hansen. Thank you so much for tuning into the Entrenched Podcast. I hope you found this meaningful, profound, and thoughtful. Let's dig our way out of mediocre mindsets and ascend through life's challenges. I'll see you all next time.